Merry Christmas, everyone. Happy holidays. Hope everything is going well for you. You're getting some time away from work, some time with family. I'm about to head out on the road and do some flying. I should be back on Christmas Eve in the morning, hopefully, if the schedule stays the way it is, which it rarely ever does. Uh, but this episode is going to be a little bit different than what we're used to. We're not going to have a pilot on here or some sort of special operator. Uh, we've got an author. His name is Hal Sunt. He's a teacher at the Oberlin College, teaches writing, and he's written a book called Warplane, How the Military Reformers Birthed the A-10 Warthog. And in this book, he explores the A-10, its development, and what's probably most interesting is just the sort of cast of characters that were involved in this development, as well as some other things. Uh, I won't spoil it for you. Just take a look at the book. So without further ado, we'll get into it. Hal Sunt, author of Warplane. Yeah, I, I do a little hotel living myself because I'm an airline pilot now, so I spend at least half a month in a hotel. And it's just, yeah, it gets old. Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> a particular kind of lifestyle. This at least has worked for me. This hotel is not a bad one, and I get to, you know, walk to, to campus to teach, and then I've been, you know, it's got a little hotel gym and all that, so I've just been able yeah. to yeah, make it work. Well, I think the, the trick with hotels is... You got to not sit on the bed. You have yes. to like, you know, sit in the chair, <laughs> sit Absolutely. on the couch, do something. Because if you stay in the bed too long, uh, it's rough. Yeah. But but at least you have like focus because you're still going to work, right? I mean, you're you're just that's just where you're staying. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be I'll be like two days in a hotel with nothing to do because I'm sitting on reserve or something. Oh, that's or I'm brutal. Waiting. Oh, oh. <laughs> one time I did seven days straight no, no flights yeah i think the company forgot about me like legitimately like there was some schedule change i was in ontario california and um which is outside of la and uh i had a flight like after like two days and then it got canceled and then nothing changed and i wasn't going home till like the following saturday so yeah it was seven days straight and i was you just become part of the hotel at that point you know you're just right. <laughs> you know, just you just walk the halls <laughs> the last time I've always I been like <clears throat> like that uh it would have been just before covid uh and it was actually the story i was working on uh before i started writing this book i went down to disney world to write about roller coaster designers because i had been there six months earlier and realized oh i like going on rides and stuff but i had never realized who designs roller coasters. Like, is that a job? Do you go to school right. for it? Anyway, so I, I uh, then went down there and was talking to folks at Universal and Disney. But as part of it, I didn't know when the interviews were going to happen. So I was like, okay, I'm going to just book a week at a, you know, a right. Hampton Inn or something like that. Um, and everybody was ultimately like really accommodating and stuff. But I had this stretch of like, I had an interview one day and then I had like five days of just nothing and that's where i felt like i was part of the hotel too <laughs> and you kind of lose sense of time and it was it was yeah. it's being in quarantine but before that was a thing right well when you when you figure out what the breakfast schedule is like <laughs> oh it's it's tuesday i know there's gonna be hash browns you know that's when it's a problem <laughs> so you wrote a book about about roller coasters not a book but a um like oh, a okay. magazine type story. Uh, it was for oh, this okay. publication called The Ringer. I don't know if you've ever read mm -hmm. them. Um, I heard of it. But uh, 
I, I, I wrote this thing and then I had never even thought about writing a book, uh, but uh, a literary agent read that story and reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I like the writing. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And in my mind, I thought, well, no, I've never even considered that. But I figured, hey, this guy's reaching out to me. I better strike while the iron's hot. Right. And I had been interested in the A-10 for uh, quite a long time. I have a lot of family in Tucson at Davis-Monthan. Or not mm-hmm. at Davis-Monthan, but, you know, near Davis-Monthan. Yeah, and, I, and I grew up seeing A-10s fly overhead. And, you know, my dad and I, we bonded over watching Top Gun, all of that. So aviation was a real interest of mine. And in recent years, that's when the A-10 F-35, I guess, debate is what we can call it, had (laughs) kicked up. And so it was in the news more and more. And I was like, oh, I wonder if there's a story here. And I started kind of doing a little bit of research. And up until that point, I hadn't even considered that the guy largely responsible for designing the A-10 was still alive. I figured there's no way this airplane is so old. But it turns out Pierre Spray, he you know he was he he passed away while I was writing the book, but uh, he he was alive as I started reporting it, and I just reached out to him cold. He uh, had a recording studio. He was really into music and particularly jazz. And I said, hmm. you know, dear Mister Spray, I'm interested in writing, or interested in the A10, and I'm wondering if you'd be down to talk to me. And then we spent the next couple of years. First talking a whole bunch on the phone, because that's right when COVID started. And then we spent a, a fair bit of time together in person as well. But it, it kind of came together in terms of as a book very suddenly, because uh, yeah. I had never even thought about writing a book. And then I had this inkling of an idea and figured I better see if I can make this work. And yeah, went from wow. there. Yeah, you're right. I mean, strike when the iron's hot, because I was going to ask you, because I, I, you know, I looked you up and was like, oh, wait, this is like his first book. And yeah, I didn't see any linkage. Like, is he, you know, what what is the linkage to the A-10? But you, you said kind of grew up in the in the area. Um, I mean, it's a good book. First of all, I'll say I actually just finished it last night because I'd started a while ago and then I got sidetracked with life. And then I was like, oh, I better finish this. So and but that was the beauties because it's an easy read. Oh, that's it's great not, to hear. Yeah, it's really, I, I'm not just saying that because you're here. It, it, it was actually a really good read. I really enjoyed it. Um, but but let's talk about some of these characters because I, I'm sure you've read uh, the book about John Boyd. Yes, absolutely. Robert Coram's phenomenal, phenomenal biography uh, called yeah. Boyd. Yeah. And, and so reading your book, I read Boyd, I don't know, five years ago, uh, which I thought was just fascinating sort of look into a part of the government that I don't like, you know, we talk about, you know, appropriations and things. Um, but yours, it's almost like a companion to that, because if you look at these dudes and we'll talk about them here in a minute, you can kind of talk about these guys. Um, it's this cast of characters who have such an impact on military aviation that most people have never heard of them. Um, and then you've, so you've got the book about Boyd, but it talks about spray and it talks about some of these other cats. And in your book, I mean, it's it's about the A-10, but I, I would argue it's also really about spray in, in a lot of ways. It's almost like a, a Boyd version of him. Yeah, absolutely. And it, so it was Robert Coram's book when I first got started to get interested in working on some type of story about the A-10. I was doing some cursory research and then quickly stumbled upon his book. And at first I was like, oh, well. I, I wasn't expecting a book that's largely about the F-15, F-16, John Boyd to talk about the A-10, but there's this really illuminating section in there 
about the A10. And that was my introduction to Pierre Spray. And I read this short bit about him and I was just so enthralled. And so that's part of it. I begin my book with a bit of an author's note where I'm saying I, I see my book as hopefully in conversation with these other books, um, particularly yeah. Robert Corm's book. And there's a few others. There's another great book called National Defense by James Fallows and another one called The Pentagon Wars uh, that all deal with this these cast of characters who were working in the Pentagon uh, in the you know late 60s, 70s, bit of the 80s as well. And they started out, they were known as the fighter mafia. Uh, and then they morphed into this group called the military reformers. Uh, and so I, in my book, I refer to them as the military reformers because there were some who were part of one group and another part of the other. But what links them in general is that, that they really believed in uh, essentially human centered design. So building stuff for the people who actually use it, uh, relentlessly testing these things and, and, uh, doing so at relatively low cost. So the, the impetus that fueled designing something like the F-16, which is a really wonderful aircraft is the same thing that informed the A-10, uh, Pierre Spray, who's the main guy kind of the main character of my book was involved in both of those uh so and john boyd was his his mentor this this figure who uh is really a legend in the um aviation community john boyd basically i think robert Corm says that uh, uh his his paper called aerial attack study is basically the bible of air combat so uh, john boyd had us rethink how we think about air-to-air -air combat and aviation design. He also developed this thing called the energy maneuverability theory, which in short posited that it wasn't maximum speed or total speed that was most important with an airplane. It was how quickly you could gain or lose energy. So basically how much you, or how quickly you could accelerate and decelerate and maneuver in that sort of way, um, which is, it, it kind of makes sense when you, or certainly makes sense when you step back and think about it, but it wasn't obvious at the time that, hey, it's not just how fast can we go in a straight line, it's how how well can a, uh, an aircraft maneuver and manipulate speeds um, uh, to defeat the enemy. And so I was reading up on all that, and then this figure of Pierre Spray kept uh, emerging, and he's who really caught my interest. And his his story of how he got involved with the A-10 in particular was so surprising to me. But this cast of characters, the fighter mafia slash the military reformers, um, I realized as I was working on the book that I wanted to, insofar as I could, tell the story of this airplane through their story. Uh, in part because I think also we like stories with characters as opposed to, to here's just an inanimate object, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the I mean the Boyd book for for people, I mean they should definitely read that, read your book because again there is that linkage, like like you talked about, you kind of see two sides of, of of the same coin. Um, it's funny to think about that energy maneuverability because if you look all the times before that, you start to realize like wow, no one really knew what they were doing in, in a in a scientific sense, you know. And it, and it sort of makes sense, right? Because if you look at World War One aviation, 
I mean, we weren't that much further from having cars, right? So, so the idea that you're flying around, guys didn't understand the things that were happening. You know, guys were blacking out and being called coward. You know, it's like, no, it's the G forces, but they don't understand what you know necessarily all the the science behind these things. Um, and then even in World War II, you know, there 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 obviously there was science behind it, but there wasn't nearly as much as we've come to develop. And Boyd, a, a very interesting character we could say um arrogant might be a word that, that you could use to describe him i, I think of course if, if you're not familiar with him definitely read the book because one of the most interesting things when i say arrogant is the whole i can beat anyone in a dogfight in a minute yeah i think it was a minute it was um 40 seconds so his nickname 40 seconds 40, yeah 40 second void that's right and i don't think that that was ever beaten i i don't think that he was ever beaten in that um, and I thought it was an interesting story was when, cause he showed up in Korea, like right as the war was ending. So there wasn't really any more quote unquote combat operations going on. And they, and, they, and he went out on a, a local area orientation flight and it was customary for them to do a quick, you know, dog fight while they were out there to practice. And he beat the guy, you know, and he's brand new out of flight school <laughs> and he like beat the guy and because he understood that stuff. But the reason we talk about him and as it leads to your book is because exactly Boyd became sort of this larger than life figure within the the institution. And I'm, I, it's been so long since I read that book, but I'm trying to recall how he got linked up with Spray. I remember that he Boyd was essentially put sort of in the corner mm-hmm. um, and sort of like had to to uh, work some some drug deals, if you will, to get like time to work on computers so he could do all these calculations. And I think that's around the time that he met Spray or, or one of those dudes. Yeah. So so where their their paths crossed at a at a pretty contentious point in Spray's early career in the Pentagon. So just as a as a quick backstory, Pierre's family fled the Nazi occupation in the early 40s. They flew out of Casablanca, and he would often say, you know, just like the movies, uh, <laughs> just like the movie. They settled in Queens, and at 15, Pierre uh, uh, enrolled at um, Yale, and he studied French literature and mechanical engineering. So he he was this renaissance, quite literally this renaissance man and a genius. I mean, he was going to Yale at, when he was 15 years old. And in short, he spent, you know, the next 10, 12 years working and such. And then he was recruited to join the Whiz Kids under Robert McNamara. Uh, uh, This group that, um, if anyone's not familiar, they were basically tasked with reimagining the Department of Defense. Uh, Robert McNamara had come over from the Ford Motor Company. And this is an oversimplification, but it was kind of like they were bringing the money ball uh, aesthetic or, or mindset <laughs> to defense in the way that we see it now in sports. So looking at things uh, ana- analytically. Anyway, early on, so Spray is like 27, 28. He's, he's very young at this point. And the job he's given is to assess the military spending strategy. How much money were they spending and were they spending the right amount? That kind of thing. Seemingly simple question that was really complex to answer. And in short, he found that the uh, Air Force in particular was spending way too much money on big, expensive bombers, and they needed to design two things, a really lightweight fighter airplane, what became the F-16, and an attack airplane, what became the A-10. This was a document he was writing called a presidential draft memo, and basically it was this report that was going to go to the president. And 
as this report was going around, a lot of people were really angry because he was sort of ratting out the the spending of the de- Department of Defense directly to the uh, president. So it wasn't a great look. And John Boyd was assigned by someone in the Air Force to basically discredit a part of Pre- Spray's study. And uh, so they met and then very quickly, instead of discrediting his study, John Boyd was like, hey, I really like this guy. We really hit it off. And they ended up becoming lifelong friends from there. And they had a very similar mindset, which is uh, Spray was maybe a a bit more tactful than John Boyd, but could also still be very (laughs) abrasive, I think. And uh, uh, there was that, but they also, their allegiance was to the truth and to, you know, what the data said. They They weren't particularly interested in towing a bureaucratic line. So they bonded in that way as well. They were allies in that. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought it was fascinating that they could even function, that the the institution itself would allow them to function because that they just went against so much of the belief system that the institution itself had, that the Air Force had and the Department of Defense had. And they I was just every time I read, you know, like your book and and the other one about Boyd, uh, I was like, man, how come no one's really shutting these guys down? They still seem to have a voice, even though everyone is against it. Um, and when you talk about the F-16, I think I'm trying to remember back at the time the Air Force was trying to, like, get the F-111 to be like the big fighter. And that was the big conversation was all oh, the MiG-23 and this and that and the other. And, and that's where that energy management uh, theory came into play. And then you look at Spray, and I think you even talked about it in your book. You know, he he was so focused on things that don't have necessarily big dollar signs attached. Like, and it was in Boyd's book too. Talking about Spray was a big into like we need more trucks. Yes, like you need the logistics. It's not about this high tech thing. It's it's how do you support the warfighter? I mean, that's one of the the most interesting things to me about Pierre. Pierre Spray, it took me a while to appreciate this, um, but he, so he's this, he's a literal genius who could have done anything, you know, and he's working in the Department of Defense at a time when we were building airplanes like the the XB-70 Valkyrie, which could fly three times the speed of sound and it would ride on its own supersonic, supersonic shockwave. We were putting men on the moon, all this really high tech uh I don't love this word when talking about aviation stuff, but, you know, sexy design. And Pierre devoted his energy to, you know, thinking, advocating for trucks, to uh, being interested in how do we deploy troops, to designing an airplane that flies really slow and really low to the ground and is not supersonic and does not have all these sophisticated things. It's, to me, a testament to how... uh, unpretentious he was and how unpretentious right. all of these folks were. They they knew that they were really smart, but they didn't need to to prove it with weird strategies right. to try to get promoted or whatever. And I'll just mention too, I talk about uh, this other gentleman a little bit in my book, but he, he gets um, uh, a lot of space in uh, Robert Corum's book as well. The reason that these uh, guys were able to kind of keep moving through the Pentagon and doing the work they did was that there was this gentleman named Tom Christie who kind of served as top cover for everyone. He was also in his own right, uh, you know, effectively a genius and did a lot of work um, 
uh, on all of these things. He did all the calculations for John Boyd's theories. Um, he was a brilliant mathematician or is a brilliant mathematician, I should say. Uh, but it was this confluence of you have certain gentlemen like Tom Christie and others who could navigate the bureaucracy and allow the other folks to just do what they did. And that's why this group interests me so much too. It's this, uh, I don't know, they just were this really dynamic kind of perfect team that worked together. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like a, it's like a buddy cop movie. You could just see <laughs> these dudes, you know, like you could literally see a movie about, you know, these guys just walking the halls and just like, I don't know, knocking the papers out of somebody's hands. You know, they just seem like the, you know, just kind of shit kickers. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the truck thing, it just reminded me of a story. When I was in the army, I had a boss. Uh, he took over our brigade and I was in the support battalion at the time. So we supported this brigade. So the brigade had 120, something like that, helicopters. And our battalion was was just maintenance. That's all we we did. Maintenance, we had a little bit of communication stuff. And he came down to get a briefing from us. And uh, and he says, how long is it? How long would it take your battalion to move the entire brigade? And what he meant was, other than the helicopters, how do we pick up all the people and the equipment and move from one place to another? And our senior logistician in the battalion says, sir, we we can't even move ourselves with one lift. Like we're not built to do that. And, And the look on this brigade commander's face you know, you could see just this, these emotions change from like anger to then confusion to the frustration and then to the realization that he'd spent 20 plus years of his career not bothering to care about this side of the job, right? Or or just, you know, not, not fully understanding, I won't say not care, but not fully understanding that side of the job because we'd like to focus on the sexy. We like to fly the helicopters and fly the jets and do all this stuff. But to Spray's point, um, there's this old saying that amateurs talk tactics and professionals talk logistics. And I think that that's where his mind was, was understanding. And if you look at World War II, you know, people say, oh, you know, we, we kicked, you know, Germany's ass and all this stuff. We had a very, very high rate of building equipment. You know, my father, my uh, grandfather was a Sherman uh, gunner. He would have been, you know, he's passed on, but he would be the first to tell you the Sherman was not a great tank. We just had a ton of them. You know, right, and so right. logistics kind of won that that war in a lot of ways. Um, but recognizing that is important. And and as you said, and I think we still see it, but the Air Force in particular sees itself as a very technology based branch of the military. And that's what looks cool, you know, on TV. That's what looks cool for Congress. You know, finishing up your book last night, talking about Desert Storm, the F-117. I mean, I learned stuff about the F-117 from your book. I'd never heard, you know, it sort of challenged things that I'd always heard and never bothered to look into. Um, I mean, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So one thing I'll say to this kind of technology debate is uh, Pierre would say uh, (laughs) this was in a congressional hearing shortly after uh, Desert Storm. They were assessing the the different tech that was on display and a congressperson asked Pierre uh, what his views are on high tech. And he said, I, he, I'm paraphrasing here a little bit, but he said, you know, I don't really, I can't really answer that question because I don't believe that there's such a thing as high tech. He said, there's technology that works and technology <laughs> that doesn't, uh, which I, I mean, that kind of, that kind of epitomizes his whole approach to all of this stuff. Um, in, in the context in which he was, 
talking there was after Desert Storm, they wanted to assess all these different weapons platforms. And one of them was the performance of the F-117 Nighthawk, so the first stealth uh, airplane. And uh, Pierre was skeptical of its performance. It had been touted as uh, kind of this panacea to war that it could, you know, come in, drop one bomb, leave, and it would be unscathed and all of that. And he didn't have the data to back that up. He had talked to some folks, but he was he was skeptical that it was as um, uh, excellent as advertised. Anyway, a couple of years after Desert Storm, uh, a group, the Government Accounting Office, GAO, Accountability, the, their name changed. It's, it's one of the two, but the acronym is GAO. They were looking back into the uh, performance of the all the weapons platforms in Desert Storm. And one of the folks who I spent a fair bit of time talking with who helped compile that study is a gentleman named Winslow Wheeler. And what they found in short was that the F-117, it's not that it performed poorly, but it, it wasn't this perfect airframe. Um, yes, no F-117s were shot down in Desert Storm. However, uh, if you took the number of sorties that F-117s flew compared to other airframes, such as the A-10, uh, statistically, the loss rate was the same, which was zero, because um, uh, they flew so many fewer sorties than other airplanes like the, the A-10. They also found that uh, oftentimes it did need to be accompanied by air support um, or, or escorts, so it, it wasn't able to just kind of fly in on its own pop in, do its job and leave. Uh, so in theory, something like that stealth airframe was supposed to kind of be able to do its job without this whole larger system of support and, and all of these logistics and things. But in practice, that wasn't uh, true. And that was kind of eye-opening for me because I grew up watching uh, lots of videos about uh, airplanes, DVDs or, or VHS tapes. And I remember ones from the Gulf <laughs> War touting the, the F-117. And I thought the F-117, oh, it's this really cool airplane. All the, I really liked the F-117. And I thought the A-10 as a kid was really ugly. I wasn't terribly interested in it. Um, <laughs> and so to read that, that again, and I want to be clear here, the, the folks at the GAO and others were not saying that the F-117 is a bad airplane by any stretch, but right. that it wasn't this this cure-all perfect airplane um, and that it, it like other airframes, had plenty of problems. Uh, uh, I think Spray's quote about it, at the time it was just known as the stealth and he said something along the lines of, oh, it, see, it appears that the stealth is actually not all that stealthy uh, for various reasons. Um, and that kind of epitomizes what this whole military reformer group um, thought of when it came to technology is, they didn't believe that there was any one tool that could solve all of our problems. And they were very wary of anyone who touted one particular tool, weapon, whatever it was, as this cure-all, so to speak. Uh, they believed in things working together. Uh, you know, Pierre was a main driver in designing the A-10. That didn't mean that he didn't support air superiority airplanes. In fact, he really did. You know, he helped develop the the F-16. The way you deploy something like the A-10, as you know, is you have to clear the skies so that the, the you can then support the ground. Um, so they were just constantly pushing back against this idea of, hey, let's design this one perfect thing and it'll solve all of our problems. But it was, it was yeah. mystifying for me to learn that the F-117 wasn't exactly perfect. 
Right. And, and exactly. It's not that it it couldn't do a job. It just didn't do, like you said, a job. Because back then, I mean, I was a kid, Desert Storm, but, I, you know, the, the, the sort of going line was it's invisible. It shows up. I remember it shows up as a flock of birds on radar, if at all. Um, but in your book, you talk about the GAO uh, report, and it, it did talk like like pilots were saying, yeah, we could get to the target. But the moment we dropped the bomb, not even the bomb impact, the moment we dropped the bomb, we would start taking fire. And that's because, yeah, you've changed the radar signature of the thing. You've opened the door to drop the bomb out. So, I mean, I, I don't know anything about radar other than the very basics. And I know that, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then as you uh, talked about as well, the the number of sorties that they flew compared to everything else. Yeah. You flying at night, it's much safer. It's just right. Kind of comes part and parcel. That's part of the stealth design. I guess you could say is you paint it black and you fly at night, then it's going to be harder to get shot at. Um, and I thought it was interesting. I think it was spray that was talking about, you know, if, if we can't make this tiny thing small, uh, uh, uh this tiny thing stealthy, what hope do we have for the B2? Like how stealthy really is the B2? Um, and then, you know, I guess they're working on another, another stealth bomber now, or, or they have one. Um, but yeah, I mean, those are good questions to ask because it, you know, it makes sense. I get it. Like when the Navy kind of got rid of, seems like almost everything and they just made F-18s kind of do it all. Right. So it's like, oh, now they're tankers and now they're electronic warfare from a maintenance standpoint. Yes. hundred percent. I got it. It makes sense from a training standpoint, both for the maintenance personnel and for the pilots, much easier to manage. Um, but the, the the military reformers, the fighter mafia guys, yeah, exactly. They were looking at it at a point is like, yeah, but you have to have a specialty. There was a book I read years and years ago. I wish I could remember what it's called. It was more like a study that came out of Leavenworth. Maybe you read it in, in your in your studies. Um, it was a it, it was a long title. It was very clinical. I think it was like close air support from 1914 to you know something or other. Yes. Yes. And it, but it talked about how like we went into just about every war without having a dedicated ground support aircraft, but we left every war with one. And it's like, you know, because and and the point was like, stop reinventing the wheel. Acknowledge the fact that you have to have something that's specially designed to do this because we just keep figuring it out on the fly, and that's where the A ten. And then, like you said, I mean, since I've been a kid. They've tried to get rid of the A-10, I don't know, four times, five yeah. times, something like that. It just continues uh, continues to go on. It's been on the chopping block for basically its entire existence. The the That history of close air support, that kind of also embodies particularly Pierre's mindset. So he was an empiricist. He, he believed in making decisions based on, you know, what has past experience demonstrated and taught us. And he believed and it's shown true that in every war we've needed close air support we we have needed that thing and and to try and not eliminate close air support but to kind of uh shunt it off to other sort of tools or airframes it it just doesn't quite work i mean it's interesting though that kind of the finest close air support airplane prior to the a10 was the p47 which was not initially designed for that but by accident or not by accident, but just because it had this big fat radial engine, as opposed to the P-51, which was liquid cooled, the P-47 could take a bunch of hits and 
keep flying. And it had this really big wing, so it was really maneuverable, so it could stay above the battlefield. Uh, so that kind of happened by accident. Pierre's uh, kind of motto or approach to airplane design was that you design something for a particular mission, you design it to be excellent at one thing, and then if it turns out to be good at other things, you know, great, that's gravy. But you, it's he didn't believe in the idea of kind of setting out to design something to do a whole bunch of different things at once. One of his favorite examples, his favorite airplane designer, I should say, was this gentleman named Ed Heinemann, who built the A1 Sky Raider, which was really formative to the folks who were building the A10, um, and the A4 Skyhawk. Uh, so the A4 was initially designed for, there was this craze in the kind of 50s and early 60s for high-speed, low-level nuclear bombing. Strap a nuke onto a, a fast jet and drop it and, and go from there. That's what the A4 was designed for. Now, of course, it was never used for that, but it turned out to be this really excellent attack and bombing aircraft outside of that. Um, uh, and P Pierre used that as an example for, look, you design it for one thing, and whether it's used for that one thing or not, it can have uses and, and be effective in a lot of other contexts. Yeah. Well, in the book, I was surprised to learn this is one thing I'd never heard of. It talked about the A-10 in an air to air role. And obviously not in a sense of like being an air superiority fighter, but they had those scenarios where they had the, and I can, I would love to see pictures or video of this, but of F-16s towing, I guess these target drone things. Yeah. And then the A-10s were engaging it and they were, they were killing it. Yeah. So, so, and that's the reason that they were doing this training that, that I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it gives me an opportunity to shout out the, the most legendary hog driver that there is the one who's considered the best of the best. This gentleman named Robert Muck Brown. Uh, and when he was in charge of de developing the curriculum for training hog pilots at the weapons school, he, you know, read somewhere that, hey, it says that we're supposed to be able, again, not that they would be used for air-to-air -air stuff, but that this sure. is supposed to be able to do this in some way. So he said, well, we might as well practice that. And so they did, and they set up these F-16s towing, I think it was a balloon along the cable. And the, the funny thing was that because the A-10's gun was so accurate or is so accurate, they would get up, they would spend all this time getting the balloon to be towed. And then the first person to go up would not just hit the balloon, but they'd shear off the whole cable and it would drift into the, the gulf or wherever it would it would fall off into. And they'd be like, well, that's our training for the day. We can't do any more. Yeah. Um, so no, yeah, no hog driver would say, hey, we can we can compete with the best of them in air to air stuff. But it it has demonstrated that it, it can do that. And I think it was in Desert Storm that A-10s were responsible for either one or two um, helicopter helicopter yeah. So it technically did have some, does have some air to air kills to its name. Yeah. yeah. Well, what was funny, there was a part where it talked about how somebody said, well, they don't even have a radar. And somebody's like, well, there was a lot of, there a lot of shoot downs in World War II and nobody had radar on board there either. Right. Like it's, it's not a prerequisite to, <laughs> to, to do air to air. Um, and, and I don't think people can fully comprehend how accurate the A-10 can be. I've worked with them when I was in the Army, and um, I, I remember, in fact, it was here where I live. Uh, I was stationed here, and we were doing... Um, it was really cool. Back in, like, the... This was early 2000s, when I first came out of flight school, and I was flying Kiowa Warriors, which was a scout aircraft, and we had a big 
laser rangefinder designator on top of the aircraft. But we had a 10 station over at Pope Air Force Base, mm. which is basically attached to, to Fort Bragg, which is now Fort Liberty. But we would go out on the range just to go do our flying and you would hear, you know, other aircraft on the radio and stuff. And so we heard these A-10s one time talking to the the JTACs, the Joint Terminal Attack Controllers. So we called range control and said, hey, can you link us up with these guys and see if they want to do some training with us? So they talked to them, blah, blah, blah. So like, yeah, yeah, come on board. So we went over and the JTACs would talk us on to targets as the scouts. We would find the targets and then we would laze it. And then the A-10s would come in and shoot on our laser spot. And I remember this. I remember very specifically the JTAC telling the A-10 that they needed to break by 4,000 feet. Mm. So 4,000 feet, you know, from, you know, from the target, essentially. And they're coming in, you know, diving in, shooting the gun. And uh, there was two tanks and we were lazing the left tank. So the lead aircraft comes in and he shoots again, breaking by 4,000 feet. And I swear to God, every round that he fired, hit that tank, just, <laughs> just hit it. And we're like, oh, wow, it's a good shot. And the Jade has says negative, negative. We wanted the other tank, the one next. I was like, OK, <laughs> so we move the laser spot to the next tank. And number two comes in and just puts every round on the other tank. Wow. Very accurate system. And so talking about shooting these balloons, which I still I've got to see an F-16 towing a balloon. I can't even picture that. But uh, but yeah, interesting, you know, side note that I, I, I had no idea about. And then talking about uh, Muck MVGs. And that's another thing that I'd never thought about. I always took it for granted because as a helicopter guy wearing MVGs, I mean, it's just part and parcel of what we do. But I, I didn't realize how divisive, I don't know if divisive is the right word, how contentious it was to wear night vision goggles for pilots. Mm-hmm. And I never thought about it because ejecting, yeah, that, that could be a problem. And there's other issues in the cockpit. Um, but that was a big push in the A-10 community. Yeah. And what, you know, uh, Muck's really good, good friends and, and folks who flew with him, they, they credited him as what his real, he was a great driver, but his real skill was being a visionary. And part of being a visionary was understanding how to work within and around these bureaucracies. And he believed, Hey, we need to be able to, to fly with these NVGs and to do the job that we're going to do. But the problem was, you know, that's a new that was a new idea at the time. So there was no precedent to actually make that happen. And for a whole host of or a whole in a a whole host of ways, he basically manufactured a precedent for setting up this testing program in such a way that then the Air Force would acknowledge, hey, okay, this has been proven. We can do this um, and to make it happen. And uh, it, it it changed the 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 way the A-10 can be flown. One of his disciples and and closest friends, a, a gentleman named uh, who goes by the call sign Rain Man uh, in Afghanistan, he then had to convince his superiors that, hey, we need to be able to, it, it had been shown that they can use these, but they were not allowed to use them in combat yet for various reasons. And he had to convince them how to do it. And the way he did is he invited his boss essentially to the airstrip when all these uh, uh, airplanes were getting ready to take off and go support troops who needed help. And it was pitch black, but the whole airfield and airstrip was alive with, with the sound of engines and folks loading up and all of that. And he brought this gentleman up to the top of a, a control tower, gave him some NVGs and he looked around and he said, look at all these airplanes moving. Every, everybody's getting ready to do their job. And then he panned over and he said, and there's the A-10s and they're sitting there doing nothing. And yeah. 
why are they doing nothing? It's because we won't let them take off for the NVGs. We need to let that happen. And that's, I loved that story because that was a great example of that's combining vision with common sense. The reason Rain Man thought to do that was he asked himself, what would Muck do in this situation? And it's yeah. to just clearly communicate, hey, we need to see, we, we need to help someone appreciate why this is a need and why we need to make this happen. Yeah, shame is a powerful tool as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, look at, look at what we're doing. Um, at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Yeah, well, I had... um. You mentioned him in the book, uh, John Marks, he, mm. Desert Storm. He was a lieutenant in Desert Storms in one of the biggest, you know, tank kill moments of an A-10's history. They killed like 28 tanks or something in a day. Um, you know, he's a lieutenant colonel when I spoke to him. He, he was on the show about a year, year and a half ago, I think. But we were talking about the evolution of the A-10, but we were talking about it during Desert Storm. And such an interesting time period for the A-10 and its pilots because... It had been designed, you know, with this idea of the Cold War, low daylight shooting at tanks. And now you've put it in the desert. There's nowhere to hide. Um, you're fighting tanks, but you're also fighting a lot of other stuff. They were being used against other targets that they weren't necessarily designed to do. And then they were flying at night again without goggles. So they're using the Maverick. Right. Uh, as a poor man's pod, which they were told specifically not to do, which I always thought was interesting. Like they were taught in school, like, don't do this because you're going to fly heads down. And then overseas, like, well, <laughs> do this, you know, right, right. this is what we need you to do. And they were very successful, um, you know, within within reason, they were successful doing that. Um, and you kind of mentioned it in the book as well. How how is the A-10 stayed alive from from that point? Because we've talked about it. It's, it's the Air Force has tried to cut it so many times. Because, look, let's be honest, the military and the government in general, it's a game of moving money around. It's one thing is taking money from another thing, which is why I always get very frustrated when when I could barely get the parts needed to fix my trucks in, in the Army. But the Air Force has painted some jet to look like like a like a tiger or something for an air show. And I'm like, how much money did you spend on this paint job that I can't get parts for this truck that I actually have to take into combat? But. But the A-10 has managed to not only survive, at least to, you know, to this point, um, but it's it's been improved. And you talk a little bit about how the Guard has been a, a big part of that, the, the Army Guard and Reserve. Yeah, so that story of how, again, the A-10 is, as you just said, it's not just kind of kept trucking along. It's gotten more and more advanced in these very s small piecemeal ways. It's really interesting. So part of it is that, there's not a lot of funding behind the A-10. Um, there's there's kind of very little at all. And the downside of that is that it's it's hard to make things happen, you know, big upgrades. The The benefit of it is that it's not, there's not a ton of oversight because um, we're not working with big, you know, financial figures here. Um, th what they are able to do is there are these small funds called NGRIA, um, which are 
these appropriations set aside for the National Guard to to make these these piecemeal upgrades rather efficiently and effectively. And doing little things here and there, it's kind of almost like the ship of Theseus, Theseus, where piece by piece, you replace a plank, you you update a small thing here and there. And before you know it, you have something like the A-10C, which is, you know, it looks a lot like the A-10A, but is a much more advanced aircraft. Um, the, the most advanced thing that, uh, that the way it's the most advanced actually is not so much something that's been added onto the airplane, but it's the helmet that the folks wear. So at least at the time, again, some of this some of this evolution can change quite rapidly. But at the time that I was writing, uh, the Scorpion helmet-mounted queuing system, I think I've pronounced that correctly, yeah. uh, was like the most advanced helmet in all of the armed forces. Uh, and it had all this high tech involved with it. And so you have these folks flying this kind of archaic, not archaic, but old airframe. But inside they have the something as advanced as any other other airplane or yeah, it's a fifth, most, fifth gen helmet and a third gen aircraft or that's something. what i'm looking for yeah exactly <laughs> and um so that also just speaks to the resourcefulness of the folks involved here like rather than saying oh, okay we don't have the money well we just can't do anything they started to be really savvy about well where can we upgrade things piece by piece and these upgrades were able to happen really quickly so uh, again i it's things may have changed in the last couple of years, but um, the folks were telling me that at least at the time, the helmet that the A-10 guys had was more advanced than anything else in the uh, uh, Air Force. Uh, now, other airplanes may have caught up since then, but sure. that was kind of interesting. They were able to to, to uh, expedite getting this helmet involved and uh, in, in on the heads of the guys who are flying because um, it didn't have to go through this same laborious process. And there, to be clear, there's a lot of value to having a laborious bureaucratic process when improving upgrades, because the idea of that is to make sure that we're spending money responsibly. I think with the A-10, though, those figures are rather small. Uh, and so it, it's, it, it, it's maybe more excusable and, and, and more beneficial to just get these things going. And clearly it's been a responsible use of money because it's made this airframe something that can continue to fly despite you know, all, uh, all thinking to the contrary, that it's this old sort of hunk of junk. It's kind of like the Millennium Falcon where you're, right. and you're like, <laughs> you know, Luke Skywalker saying that's a piece of junk. And all the hog drivers are like Han Solo being like, no, no, no. Once you, once you see yeah, this all parsecs, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, that the, the culture in that community, and it, it reminds me a lot of, the Kiowa warrior that I used to fly because the A-10 is sort of the redheaded stepchild of the Air Force in a lot of ways. And, and the Kiowa was as well for the Army. We um, And it was interesting because we were always the last on the budget. We were always the last, you know, to get any sort of support. We had to fight tooth and nail for any upgrades. But we had the highest operational rate. Uh, you know, we had some advanced technology. You know, you look at the early 90s, late 80s, we had more advanced type stuff like moving map. I mean, it was the first digital glass cockpit that the army had, Wow! but it was the, the redheaded stepchild. And so it was interesting. But the culture in the A-10, there was a story that you that you tell in the book about the the guys who had to divert to Al-Assad, um, which is a terrible airbase. I've been there and it was just flies everywhere. I couldn't wait to leave. 
Um, but but they divert to Al-Assad, which at the time was just a runway. I mean, there was no one occupying it from what I understand. Um, but they land and then they made a comment. There, there's a comment about how, well, they're good A-10 pilots, so they all had binoculars. And they yeah. used their binoculars because they saw these trucks approaching. And it reminded me of the story that, that, that Colonel Marks told me when he was on the show about, you know, they have all this helmet queuing and they have all these targeting pods and all this stuff. Well, he didn't grow up with that. You know, he grew up flying 500 feet off the ground looking for Russian tanks hiding behind hills and they used binoculars. And he said, I always tell these kids that are coming up, like bring binoculars. Yep. And so it was interesting that that kind of carryover because you've got this sort of juxtaposition between new technology, most advanced helmet at the time. Make sure you got binoculars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the Pierre thing of there's tech that works then tech that doesn't. And obviously the helmet yeah. works. I'm not saying that, but the the binoculars are yeah it's it's maybe more simple but that is tech that works and yeah i i was so interested to hear that too like talking with other hog drivers like when they're communicating with other airplanes and trying to identify if something's a friendly or a target something that a hog driver will do is they will fly down and look out the window and pull out their right. binoculars and you know get visual identification on a target yeah yeah well that was one of the big sticking points when in the army when the Kiowa went uh was put out to pasture in the mid what was it 2015 I think is when when they were retired 2016 something like that and so we were transitioning to the Apache being the the sole scout attack helicopter in the army and there was a lot of consternation about that because it was the same deal I mean I remember finding you know uh Taliban and and Al Qaeda and stuff finding positions that they would use because you could see the water bottles. Mm. I'd never see that from an Apache. You know, when I flew an Apache, you you could get low and look out the window, but it just wasn't quite the same. Um, but you you find something interesting, like oh let me let me take a look at this and circle down below. We're like oh there's a water bottle here, like up on top of this mountain in the middle of nowhere, overlooking wow. this very important road. It's probably not kids, you know, like coming all the way up to the top of here, but somebody's been up here. And so, yeah, and then and you talk about a story about um, an unfortunate story where A-10s visually identified something and reported back, but a B-1's like, nah, we'll we'll drop the bomb, you know, and ended up killing a bunch of a bunch of civilians. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, technology works till it doesn't, and that's really the the seems like what Spray was saying is it's great to have all the stuff. We we don't not want it. It's just if you put all your eggs in that basket, that that's it. There's nothing left. Yeah, that kind of epitomizes what the home reformer ethos was, Hey, let's not just put all our eggs in one basket. They, uh, part of how the a 10 actually even came to be in the mid seventies was Tom Christie and others advocated for something called a high, low mix where they said, look, you can build, uh, I mean, the B one has had kind of a torturous life, but <laughs> at the time they're like, look, you can build the B1 and other things, but you can't just build those. The way you'll get funding to do that is build some of those, but then also build cheaper F-16s, A-10s, that kind of thing. Um, and I should say one of the more interesting things that I found was Pierre actually didn't even particularly like the A-10. Uh, hmm. By the it's as soon as he it, still thought it was bloated, right? He thought it was bloated. He thought it was too big. Um, he he didn't want it to be faster, but he wanted it to be able to accelerate more quickly so that it would be more escapable. Basically, from the time that it rolled off the production line, 
he was thinking about designing a successor, uh, not just him, but uh, Chuck Spinney, Chuck Myers, a number of others who were all uh, members of this uh, reformers group. Uh, and Pierre, what an airplane he really liked and something that he had in mind for a successor was there's a British airplane called the Nat, which, as its name suggests, is really, really tiny. And he thought that we should have a, a much more smaller airplanes that could just basically constantly be in the air and could refuel take off and refuel uh, hot so they could keep their engines running and go. Um, and so uh, he had a kind of a more extreme view or vision for what the A-10 could be. He still, to, to be clear, like really appreciated what the A-10 is, but he was not some uh, someone just pining for the good old days and saying, oh, like the A-10 is perfect and we shouldn't have anything else. He He was actually like embarrassed that something an adequate successor hadn't been developed yet so in researching your book obviously you you met with spray but did you get a lot of you got a lot of time with actual a10 drivers talking to them seeing them up close yeah which which was huge for me i want to give a a a lot of folks were really generous with their time with me the the ones i really want to give a shout out to are the folks at the 104th fighter squadron out of maryland um pierre he lived close to to uh, that airbase um, in Baltimore, and he had become close with a number of folks there, and that's who he put me in touch with, and they kind of were my like guardian angels of sorts. So uh, there's a gentleman, Brian Bading, his call sign's master. He was really shepherding me along throughout this whole process, as was uh, Catherine Slam Conrad, um, and and many other folks as well, but. Uh, you know, they were just so like welcoming to me and really wanted me to understand not just this piece of technology, but what it is that they do and how they fly this thing. Um, obviously, I didn't get to fly an A-10, but Slam did take me through their flight simulator. So I got to, which is really advanced. And so I at least got to appreciate a little bit what is it like to be in the cockpit and and to to have a sense of how this thing works that's awesome yeah so it let me so the book is called warpath where can people get it yeah so i'm uh, sorry warplane sorry it's (laughs) Um, it's sort of anywhere books are sold so uh you know barnes and noble amazon that kind of thing a lot of independent bookstores um uh yeah what are you going to work on next uh, this is going to sound kind of odd, but cause it's not aviation or military related, but I think I want to write a book about insurance. <laughs> it's this thing that, uh, it affects everyone's life, but whenever I ask anyone how it actually works, no one can really tell me, like, I don't really know. Right. I know. I know it's something that I need, but like I go to the doctor and I am I'm like, gee, I hope I don't have to pay a whole lot of money. You know, you get your bill a couple yeah. weeks later. Um, so I want to write a book about kind of demystifying this thing. And I have this idea of for the structure of it where I want to try and I won't actually do this. It would be way too expensive. But what would it cost to insure myself against everything in life from the right. mundane like car insurance to the extreme? Like, did you know you can buy cold feed insurance like if you're going to get married, but you don't know at the last minute if you oh. or your partner's going to get cold feet, you can like get insurance for that thing, which is so weird. 
yeah, I mean, I guess it makes sense. It, it it's it's almost like um a bookie, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's you're just betting. That's all it is. Is you're in that situation, you're just hey, well, you know, what do you say? You know, ten to one odds. <laughs> you know, that's a hundred percent what it is, and people will buy into it. Yeah, well, that that would be an interesting topic. The more you think about it, because there is a lot of you know, there's. You know, I always, when I was in the army, I would, I would travel for this one job and we'd always have to go rent a car. And they're always like, oh, do you want renter's insurance? <laughs> and I was, no, I don't like, I mean, if it gets smashed up, we'll figure it out. But the chances of it happening, but I'm not going to pay extra for the, there are so many, like, I remember somebody showed a picture the other day, funny, you mentioned this, uh, flying insurance. There was cubicles at the airport where you could buy flight insurance you know just in case the plane explodes you know wow. you've got it covered you do it right there i think it was like in the 60s or something there was like a little kiosk <laughs> a little See, automated I, thing i'm so neurotic that like i if i could afford it i would just buy all that stuff and i'm, I'm just, <laughs> you know what i mean and, and right. that's why it interests me is i think it taps into sort of fear and neuroses and sure but i'm in general i'm interested in i think like using writing as a way to like understand how the world works and, and why things yeah. are the way they are. And for me, this story, it was about a lot of things, but part of it was just a question of like, okay, how did this happen? How did this thing happen? How did we design something? Um, it's not perfect, but that it, that it's endured. What does enduring design look like? And in general, yeah. I, I think I like to write about design because it, it connects to like how we think as is people and how do we envision something and make it work? Now, well, like I said, it's a it's a very good book. Um, it was a very easy read. You know, you've got some some stories from some firsthand accounts from some pilots and some sort of anecdotal about the aircraft. But again, I I, I still think of the book more about spray and and like you said, a, a sort of a companion book to Boyd. So for those listening, if you've uh, if you've read Boyd, definitely read this one. If you haven't read, read them both because you you do see again these characters. You know, it, you got you got Boyd, you got Spray, you've got um, uh, Spinney. Is that right? Yep, Chuck Spinney. Um, yeah, Chuck Spinney. There's a couple other guys, and it's just fascinating to see these guys operate together. Um, I think I think Boyd was very anti A10, if I remember correctly. Not so much anti A10, but not per, like. Not uh, he didn't care, excited, but yeah, yeah, just just he was a fighter pilot, he right, didn't care right. about which. So, and that's what's always interesting, too, is like because he was very, I don't want to say anti Air Force, but he was against sort of the established thinking of the Air Force, except in that because the, you right. know, there's the old saying, like, not a pound for ground. It, he was very much in that camp, <laughs> he did not like that. He's like, oh, we're fighter pilot stuff. Um, and so Spray kind of had to go his own way in, in a way to, to push that one through, but um. No, it's a it's a great book, and I'm glad that um, that I got a chance to read it, and we got a chance to talk about it. You know, it's funny having even just a little hole in the wall podcast. You get constantly you get emails about you know books about stuff, and it, and it's always something just completely unrelated, right? It's like you know, oh, have so and so he talks about multi level marketing or business, man. You know, like this has nothing to do with me. And then I got the email from I don't I don't know I don't even remember. I guess it's your publicist or whatever, but you know, kind of like, Oh, there's this book. And I was like, well, that, that actually kind of falls in line with what I talk about. So, um, I appreciate you taking the time and, and coming on. And, uh, again, the, 
I'll say it correctly this time, Warplane. I don't know why I was thinking Warpath, but Warplane is the book. Um, and you can find it all over the place. And uh, Hal, thank you so much for, for talking about it. Thanks for having me on. And seriously, thank you for just taking the time to read it. Writing is a can be a really lonely thing. And so it's Great. it's fun to talk about this stuff and to talk with folks who have um, actually experienced the A10 and 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 all that. So I'm I'm just really grateful to to have been on and get to chat it with you. Yeah, great. I'm I'm afraid we probably won't be able to talk about your insurance book here, but <laughs> That's okay. uh, I'll, I'll I'll read it anyway. <laughs> I, I promise we won't just email you, "Hey, here's a book about insurance." <laughs> <laughs> Like I said in the interview to Hal, I, I really enjoyed the book. It's a very easy read. I think you guys will enjoy it as well. Definitely take a look and pick that up. I'll put a link down in the show notes so you can find that. And uh, while you're doing that, go ahead and check out the merch store. A big thank you to Patreon supporters for keeping the lights on here at the show and for all of you who listen. We will see you again in the future whenever I can get someone lined up for the show. Until then, happy holidays. We'll see you later.